The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Psalm 5, starting in verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover them with fa- him with favor as with a shield. This is the word of the Lord. Here we are, we are in Psalm chapter 5 this morning. Um, I'm titling our sermon this morning, I Will Seek You in the Morning. Uh, We're going to hear this a couple times throughout the sermon. Uh, Psalm 5 is a prayer for the morning. And I'm drawing that right out of verse 3, where King David says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. I think the main idea that David is driving home to us this morning from this psalm is that he wants us to see that Psalm 5 is a prayer to start the day when the muck of life is thick. Uh, So let's pray and then we will get into these verses. Let's pray. Father, we need you. And I dare say we need you more than we could even possibly imagine right now. We are prone to think maybe we need you a little bit, but we don't really need God that much. And that is is just not true. We are desperately, desperately needy for you my King, my God, Yahweh, in every way conceivable, every way imaginable, every area of life, every moment, we need you. Father, I pray that you would use these words this morning to turn our gaze to Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Savior who delights to save sinners, 
the Savior who died on the cross and resurrected from the dead so that sinners could be and can be saved. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move in power and might in such a way so that the words we hear this morning would not be merely words, but it would be the gospel of God's grace that would land on us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and would lead us to a life of radical obedience because we are convinced of what we have heard this morning to be true. God, may we not just be hearers of the word only, but by your work in us, make us doers of the word as well. It's in your name I pray, King Jesus. Amen. What I want to try to do right now is set up before you what is going on in in Psalm Psalm chapter 5. Uh, If you've been paying attention for the past couple of weeks, there's very much a theme that is going on in Psalm 3 and Psalm 4, and it most definitely carries over into Psalm chapter 5. It's this idea of crisis. It's this idea of deep distress when it lands in our lap. And that idea of crisis and deep distress, it is very much in the forefront of David's mind as he prayed this prayer, wrote this psalm, Psalm chapter 5. And so in order to try to get us into the mind space of what I believe King David was experiencing that led him to write this psalm, I want you to imagine this scene with me. There you are. You're in crisis. There you are. You are in deep distress. You're mired down in the muck of life. Night has given way to dawn and another day looms before you. It's Monday morning and you know you need to get up and you need to face the day, but you struggle to peel yourself out of the sheets. You manage to do so just barely. You slide your feet into your slippers and there you sit staring at your wall for what seems like an eternity. You say to yourself, here we go again. It's another day. It's the same crisis. It's another morning. It's the same deep distress My enemies are still many. My foes are still mouthy, lying men with slandering words, angry people with angry hearts, doubting friends with despairing words, trials, troubles, tribulations, suffering, difficulty. It's just still there. It's still there. It's just more muck. It's just more mire. It's more of the same again. This is the way it was yesterday, and you're positive that this is the way it's going to be tomorrow. And so you struggle to your feet as you begin to shuffle about your room as your mind clouds with questions. How long is this crisis going to last? When is this deep distress ever going to end? You see, it's not an issue of not believing these things from Psalm 3 and Psalm 4. In crisis, you have great confidence that salvation belongs to the Lord. There's no doubt in your mind that He can deliver you from this crisis. In distress, you are convinced that you can dwell in peace. You've read Psalm 4 and you believe it. You know this to be true. 
But the truth is you thought this crisis, you thought this distress would be over by now. Like the fury of a summer thunderstorm that quickly comes and then it quickly goes, you assumed it would be the same with your deep distress. Sure, it might come. Sure, it might go. But surely it's not going to linger long. But the reality is your deep distress, your trial, your trouble, your tribulation has been anything but quick. Actually, it's been weeks and it's been months since it all began. And because of the longevity of your circumstances and because of the proximity of this situation, for the umpteenth time, you ask yourself, how can I start my day again? How can I do this again? How should I begin my day on day 101 of this crisis, day 201 of this crisis, month 10 of this crisis? Have, we, have any of us ever been there before where you're just like, I just don't know if I can do this thing again today. And David, you see, if he heard you asking this question, how can I face this distress again today? This crisis, this trial, this trouble, this tribulation. I just don't know if I have what it takes to go through today again i think if he heard you asking this question he'd be go he would agree with you it's true you don't have what it takes to go through this day again and he models for us what we can do in order to begin our day when the distress and the crisis looms in front of our face yet again you see i think if david heard us talking and pondering these questions to ourselves he would say listen guys you need psalm chapter five and you need Psalm chapter 5 because this psalm is a prayer to start your day when the muck of life is thick. And it's just smack dab in your face and it seems like it's been dragging on for eternity. David knows what it's like to be mired down in the muck of life. And so David prays. And in his own prayer, what he does is he provides us with a prayer tutorial, basically teaching us how we can pray when we find ourselves yet again in the same situation, crisis again, distress again, trial, trouble, tribulation, difficulty yet again. Psalm 5 is a prayer to start your day when the muck of life is thick. And so David says, here's how we can begin. First, we can begin with expectant prayer. Expectant prayer. Look at verses 1 through 3 in your copy of your Bible. David starts praying in verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. Notice that David begins by praying to the Lord. All caps, that's Yahweh. Praying to Yahweh. And he calls him my King and my God. So King David has a king. And his king is Yahweh. And David says, I am praying to you in this situation. So as we keep trucking through these verses, what I want you to do is just keep this mental image of sort of David there, hunkered down, deep in distress, legs dangling over the edge of his bed, and he's sitting here thinking to myself, how am I going to go through this again today? 
And he says, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to turn my heart's worries and my attention to the king, God, who's ruling over my circumstances. You see, David, in his prayer, isn't launching words into the heavens, hoping they're heard by, by somebody out there somewhere. David knows to whom he prays. Yahweh is his name, the covenant-keeping God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is king, and the name again behind that word God is Elohim. So he's praying to my king, my Elohim. King Elohim, who is he? He is the God who will always do right, and he is powerful to save, and he will hear my prayer, and I am trusting that he will answer my prayer. This is to whom David prays. But then notice that David has a certain what he prays. Give ear to my words, he says. So part of his prayer is being driven by the actual speaking of words. He sees clearly what's going on, and so he articulates those words to God. So there's times when he can articulate the distress and the crisis that he is in. But notice that we also see that David's prayers are marked by groanings, and the sounds of cries. Ever been there before? Where your distress is so deep, your crisis so great, that what ekes out of you are merely groans and cries. If you've ever been in this place, the good news is that God hears all kinds of prayer whether they are spoken words, whether they are broken words, whether they are desperate words, what David is reminding himself as his legs are dangling over his bed, as he's facing the prospect of another day of deep distress, he's reminding himself whether I can articulate this distress clearly to Yahweh or whether it's just, oh, like it's just, he's just so burdened down with the distress that what ekes out of him is just the groans and the sighs of a soul burdened by trouble. Yahweh is going, I hear it. I hear it. The promise is that Yahweh gives ear to our words, considers our groaning, and gives attention to the sounds of our cries. Notice also the when and the how of David's prayer. That's verse 3. O Lord, he says, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So when does David pray? He prays in the morning. And how does David pray? He prays with persistent expectation. His day starts in distress once again. And so what does he do? He seeks Yahweh in prayer once again. 
When it comes to prayer, he strives against this one-and-done mentality. What he doesn't do is swing his legs over the bed on day 101 of his deep distress and be like, well, I, I, I told him about it in prayer on day one. Surely that's good enough. He's like, no, no, no. The idea behind him saying, I'm praying in the morning, I'm praying in the morning is, is this. As soon as it is morning and every single morning, I'm going to take the burdened soul, the burdened distress that is weighing me down. I'm going to go to the Lord in this way. And he prays with confidence that God hears his voice for the 101st time. Yes. For the 201st time. Yes. I was just having this conversation out front with one of the young men of our church. It's in Luke chapter 11, I believe, where Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray. And he says, what you need to do is come at me like this. Imagine if you're like deep into the throes of sleep. It's nighttime. Someone comes and knocks on your door. Hey, I need some food. And you're like, dude, it's 11 p.m. I'm in bed. Go away. And he's like, hey, I need some food. 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 Jesus is teaching the disciples. That's how I want you to come at me in prayer. You're going to be so annoyed at some point in time as a human being. You're going to get up and go, I'm going to do it. Fine. I'll answer your request just so you'll go away. And Jesus says the father is like that, but he's not going to be grumpy. He wants you to come and go, hey, here's my petition. Hey, here's my prayer. Hey, here's my request. Hey, 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 hey. God smiles and says, I want you to pursue me like that every morning as long as it's this morning. Swing your legs over the bed. Lift your prayers to me. I want to hear your voice. Notice how David moves on after he lifts his prayers to Yahweh. He does so with expectation. Look at the very end of verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. What's the idea behind watching there? Some of your translations might carry over the meaning of the word. Watch expectantly. So he's not just going to throw some words up towards heaven and be like, well, I just did my part. I'm going to go on my way. It's this idea of he's coming with this right expectation that God is not only going to hear my prayer, but answer in some way. So I'm going to go about my day after day after day after day of seeking the Lord in prayer in such a way where I'm truly expecting him to bring forth some sort of answer to my Prayers. David says, I watch. That is the essence of expectant prayer. It's praying in such a way where the settled attitude of the mind, the settled attitude of the heart is God, my God, my King, Elohim. He wants to answer my prayers. And that brings a settled, happy, Reality to the heart that is about to trudge through the muck and the mire again today. Now, you might ask yourself, well, what hope that does David have 
and watching expectantly. Why is he, he doing that? In his ongoing distress, what hope does he have that God will not only hear his prayer, but answer his prayer? And the answer that David supplies for us is that David knows what God is like. He remembers God's character. That's what we see in verses 4 through 6. So here he is. He's soul deep in the muck and the mire of life. He swings his legs over again. It's day umpteenth into this thing. What is he going to do? He's going to go to the Lord in prayer yet again. And he's waiting expectantly upon the Lord to answer at some point in time. I don't know if it's going to be today. I don't know if it's going to be 20 days from now, 100 days from now. But my expectation is that sometime when the timing is right and for the good of my soul and the glory of God, he will answer me. David, why do you have that hope? Answer, I know who my God is. I know my God. And I know how he acts. And I know how he thinks. When the muck of life is ongoing, we can step into another day and pray with expectation rooted in who God is. So as David sits on the side of his bed, he begins to rehearse what he knows about God. Again, he's continuing his day. He's starting his day. So who is our God? Here is what I know to be sure, says David. Look at verse 4. But notice how he goes in a path that you wouldn't expect him to go. Who are you, O God? David says, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. David begins by describing who God is not. He is not a God who delights in wickedness. Nor can evil be a house guest of his. Sin can have nothing to do with God. It cannot dwell in his presence. Neither will the boastful stand before his gaze. And then notice how David drives deeper into the character of a God in a way that can seem, a, an, an, honestly, just a bit shocking. At least to our 21st century sensibilities and our perceptions of God. He is a God who hates evildoers. Notice he doesn't say he just hates evil. He hates evildoers. He destroys liars. And he abhors, detests, will reject bloodthirsty deceivers. In recounting these truths, what David is doing is reminding himself of God's holiness. God is holy and can have nothing to do with sin. And in his holiness, King Elohim, since he can have nothing to do with sin, what we are learning about in this holiness and how David is reminding himself, his response in these verses as he's learning about God and rehearsing about God what he knows, is he's just telling himself, listen, it is good of God. It is right of God. It is just of a holy God to be this way towards sin. So think about this. Because David knows what God hates, he conversely knows what God loves. 
He can step into the muck and the mire of another day now with real hope. Though David's enemies abound, and for him, remember, his enemies are like literal enemies. These people are the source of his deep distress. What he is saying by rehearsing these truths about God's character in verses 4, 5, and 6, what he's doing is he's reminding himself, listen, ultimately they will not get away with this according to the holiness of God. Now, I don't know what that's going to mean for me today, but my ultimate hope is that at some point in time, God will act according to his character and bring to fruition the whole scheme and circumstance of my situation according to his character for his fame in line with his holiness. And so David says, I need to remind something, because if you've ever been in that place where enemies are sharp, distress is big, and it's people who are just causing this for you, you begin to think, I think they're winning right now. And I don't know if anyone is ever going to be able to take care of these things. And David's like, no, 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 no. I don't know when, but I do know how, because of who God is. And so he reminds himself, God's character guarantees this. So what David's prayer models for us is this important connection, listen, between theology and prayer. Do you see, what, do you see how this is working? Knowing your God to whom you pray is a powerful thing in prayer. To quote one brother, the character of God is the basis and springboard for our prayer. Because Yahweh is the sort of God he is, David can make particular kinds of petitions. So what he's just doing is saying, I know who God is. And because this is the way God is, I'm going to pray according to what I know. That's what he's doing. Theology is the fuel and the springboard for our prayers. And so if it's good for David, it's the same for us. It's good for us. So for instance, think about this. Psalm 115 verse 3. Piece of theology here. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. In other words, he is sovereign. And because he's sovereign over our circumstances, what we do is we go before him in prayer with our circumstances. That's, that's the way that's working together. He's in the heavens. He does as he pleases. I need him to do as he pleases in my situation. So I'm going to pray to him. Or think about what we learned a couple weeks ago. Psalm, verse, Psalm chapter 3, verse 8. We learned this truth about Yahweh. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Therefore, we pray for the salvation of friends and family. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. Lord, I'm asking you to save. Or think about this. Because the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he wills. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1. We pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, and on and on it goes. What David is simply modeling for us right now is this, is that it is important for you to know to whom you pray. So that as you know to whom you pray, that knowledge will fuel and inform how you pray. That's what he's modeling here for us. So here's David, he's soul deep in the muck of life, expectantly praying what he knows to be true about God back to God. But not only that, his prayer continues as he marvels at God's grace. That's what we see thirdly. Verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. Marveling at God's grace. 
So again, think about the question. When the muck of life is thick yet again, how should we begin our day? David says, marvel at the grace you've received. Marvel at the grace you've received. This is how you should begin your day. In prayer, chart the course of your day according to the north star of God's grace. The north star hangs in the sky. It doesn't move. Sailors of old would chart their course across the seas upon that immovable reality, the north star. God's grace, his saving grace is an immovable reality in your life. And so he's saying chart the course of your day according to that reality. So look at verse 7. But I, here it is, through the abundance of your steadfast love, that's the grace, I'm going to enter into your house. I get to come into your presence. I get to have a relationship with you. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. So notice that in contrast to the ungodly who will not stand in God's presence, David says, but I will enter your house. I can get to stand in your presence. That is, I can and will stand in a relationship with you. But notice it's not because David is somehow superior in and of himself. It's not because David is going, well, I'm the king and they're not. They're wicked and I'm a good guy because I do good stuff. He says, no, no, no. They don't get to stand before your presence because of the sin that separates them from you, a holy God. But what he's doing is saying, like, I'm really no better than them. I too am a sinner, but I have something they don't have. That is the grace you have given me. And it is abundant. It's the love you've shown toward me. Steadfast love. In other words, David is saying, my only hope of my right relationship with you is your love shown towards me. It's grace and grace alone. It's what we just sang earlier. And notice that it's marvelous grace rightly combined with proper fear. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. So it's true, says David, by grace we can enter the presence of the king, but we also come in fear as well, coming in awe and reverence before the splendor of his holiness. So again, don't lose sight of what he's doing. I mean, I'm, I'm just telling you, I think the brother's just sitting on the side of his bed, and he's just, you know, he's fading in and out. He's just staring at the wall, like, right, he's got, he's got uh, morning breath, and his hair's shooting all over the joint. He's just sitting there, okay, man, like, God, I can expect, I can pray to him. I know who God is. God, man, he's, his grace has been shown towards me, not because I deserve it, not because I've earned it, just because Yahweh loves to pour out abundant, steadfast love to sinners. That's why I can talk to him right now and why he hears my voice. And this compels me to walk in a healthy fear, coming in awe and reverence of this king and the splendor of his holiness. But then it comes to verse 8, and I think, I think this is the crux here, guys. Verse 8, David finally makes his request. Notice that Psalm 5 is a prayer. He has not uttered a single petition. He hasn't asked a single request yet until down to verse 8. And what does he say when he finally makes his request? Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. You see, when the morning comes and you're faced with another day, this is how you can expectantly pray to the God who rules your circumstances. David prays like this, God, I have enemies. The muck is thick, God. My mind is cloudy, God. 
My heart is heavy because of my trouble and my crisis. I know there's a way that seems right to man, but I know that way leads to death. And I don't want death today, God. I want, I want life. So please, God, I'm asking you, make your way straight before me. I'm asking you, God, to establish my steps because I'm 101 days deep into this thing. And I'm just sort of losing. I'm, I'm cloudy, the stress and the burden. Like, I just don't see things clearly. So I need you to make me see things clearly today. Friends, understand that how David makes his request in verse 8 is so crucial to understanding prayer. Listen, a large part of prayer is recognizing just how dependent we are. Prayer is the overflow of a needy heart exposed to its dependency. It's a heart that speaks. It's a heart that groans. It's the heart that cries and says, God, today I can't. But today, God, you can help. Amen. Shoves off into the day. So if you are here this morning and you are in this throes, the throes of deep distress, if you're unsure of what to do next, if anxiety has you, if pressure has you, if stress has you, if crisis has you, if trial, tribulation, suffering has you, difficulty, sickness, you're just not sure what to do, relational strife, whatever it might be, and you're like, I just don't know what to do next. Psalm 8 says, ask the Lord, lead me. Lead me today. I don't know what to do. Because of my thick distress, I can't even see beyond my bedroom door, let alone think clearly about my day. I need to see the clear way through the muck of my circumstances. Therefore, make your way straight before me. That's how he's praying right now. And then what do you do once you've said, lead me, O Lord, make your way straight before me? You get up, you get on your day knowing that according to the abundance of Yahweh's steadfast love, He has given ear to your words. He's considered your groaning. And he has given attention to the sound of your cry. In other words, he has heard your voice. Praise God. Now, as David continues into verses 9 and 10, I believe he's still marveling at God's grace. And I say that because these verses reveal that David fully understands what happens to to those who um, don't know God's grace. To those... To those who run after wickedness. Look at verse 9. This fourfold description, it describes David's enemies. There's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. In short, their speech is death and deception. And it reveals the depth of their depravity. It's worthy to note that the Apostle Paul uses this verse in Romans chapter 3 to build the doctrine of man's total depravity. The radical corruption of humanity. James chapter 3 verse 8, true, the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12... That our words reveal the deeper problem of our heart's depravity. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our issue before a holy God is our sin-stained hearts. That's what it is to be a sinner in need of a Savior. 
It's not only to give mental assent to, yes, God is holy. It's not only to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior. The thing that connects the reality for what makes a believer a believer, a Christian a Christian, someone who is truly saved by grace through faith, is to say, but I am a man, I am a woman who has sinned against God, and I have sinned against the Savior, and I need that Savior to save me a sinner. It's to realize that these realities of God's holiness and the realities of Christ, they involve me in a way. I need that Savior, Jesus. I've sinned against a holy God. If you want to take the language of Psalm chapter 5, it's to say this. I am sort of the wicked one in whom God finds no delight. I'm the one who's evil. I'm the one who's boastful. I am the one who speaks lies. I am the one who can be deceitful. I am the one who can have no truth in their mouth, whose inmost self is destruction, whose throat's an open grave, who flatters with the tongue. This is me. This is me. This is me. I agree. This is me. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And the beautiful good news of the gospel of God's grace is that when any man or woman comes to the point in their life to where they can't say much, but they can say this, I agree with that description. I look into Psalm chapter 5 and go, you know what? I see me. And I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Jesus saved me. That is childlike faith of a person who is a Christian, someone who's truly trusting in Jesus for salvation. That's the good news of God's gospel. But notice how David describes someone who looks maybe into the mirror of Psalm chapter 5 and goes, yeah, I don't really see myself. He says it's going to go bad for them. Verse 10 it describes the ultimate destiny of those who remain in this condition. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. These verses describe the downward spiral of judgment. First comes the sentence, guilty. Then follows the passive wrath of falling by their own schemes until finally the active wrath of final rejection. In the words of one brother, what you read there in verse 10 is the awful destiny of those who cover the tomb of their hearts with flattery and deception and lies. Now listen, these are some hard words. Yet they are true words from which we must not shy away. So the question is this. Remember, don't lose sight. This is David's prayer in the morning in the thick of the muck of life. So you need to ask yourselves, why on earth should I remind myself of these truths in the morning? <laughs> why would I remind myself of this in the morning? This is the psalm to start your day. So why start your day praying in such a way? Answer, because we want our daily actions, we want our daily words, we want our daily thoughts to be fueled by the gospel of God's grace. That's what David's doing right now. Remember, he's reminding himself of grace received. You see, when the muck of life gets thick, it has a way of making us forget. Deep distress has a way of inflicting us with gospel amnesia. Where due to the proximity and longevity of our circumstances, we can lose sight of the abundance of God's steadfast love shown to us in Christ. 
So as day gives way to weeks and weeks give way to months, we can fight the burdensome rut of distress with God's amazing grace. In the morning when we rise marveling at the gospel of God's grace, we can not only have a reorienting effect that gives us the proper perspective on our situation, but it can propel us forward to actually respond with rejoicing and the umpteenth day of that distress. Even in the muck of life, David, is that what you're saying? He's saying yes. Even in the thick of the muck of life. That's what he says in verses 11 and 12. Respond with rejoicing. You see it there? But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. Rejoicing in trial? Yes. Singing for joy in crisis? Yes. Exulting in you in deep distress? Yes. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Listen, this is Yahweh's blessing for the righteous. He will wrap them around with favor as with a shield. This is the joy-producing refuge of God's grace while you're in the thick of the muck of life. As we begin our day, no matter how long our crisis, no matter how close our distress, ultimately, listen, your enemy, my enemy, cannot wrap us up when Yahweh has already wrapped us around with his grace. So tomorrow, guess what? Another morning's coming. And it's a Monday morning to boot. So what are you going to do? For many of us, it's going to be another day of wading out into the muck of life. How are you going to start your day? How are you going to start your day? Will we begin in prayerless self-reliance? Will we begin head down... Teeth grit, white knuckled, grinning Barrett, so we can just say, hey, I lived, survived another day? Or will we deny ourselves, grace amazed, prayerfully expectant, and happy reliance upon Jesus, our King and our God? My encouragement to you from the scriptures is that David says, by God's grace, Let's drive towards the ladder. Wake up tomorrow morning and say, God, give ear to my words. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sounds of my cry. I know who you are. And because of who you are and the grace that you've shown me, God, I need you to lead me today. I need you to make my path straight today. I want to honor Christ today. I can't do this on my own today. I don't want to do this on my own today. Jesus, I can't. Jesus, you can help. And then what we do is this. Get up out of bed. Get our clothes on, get ready. And march into the day knowing that Yahweh has wrapped you round with his grace. And that grace is a mighty refuge that will propel you through the day so that you can turn around and wake up on Tuesday and you're like, oh Lord, here it is again. It's Tuesday. It's Tuesday again. What are you going to do in the morning again? I'm going to do it again. Wednesday, 
I'm going to do it again. Thursday, I'm going to do it again. Remember the knocking of Luke 11? God, lead me. God, lead me. Listen, there is never a day when that repetitive prayer of yours makes God sick in his mouth because he's heard you say it again. That day will never come. So don't give up. Keep asking. Keep pursuing. Keep praying. Let's pray. Father, we need you. Oh, how we need you. Our one defense, our righteousness. Oh God, how we need you. Jesus, you are the rock. It's in you whom we seek refuge. And that's what you tell us. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. So Father, I pray that we would rejoice today. Rejoice in the grace received. If we can truly say, I am one who has received the abundant grace from God. Father, if there are some of us here who have not received this grace, would you please move in such a way to open their eyes to say, I see myself in Psalm 5. I am that sinner. I see Jesus. He is the Savior. And I can't say much, and I don't know how to say much, but I can say this. Jesus, save me. I'm trusting in you. You're my only hope of salvation. God, if someone can articulate that, that is good news because those are the words of a heart that has been made alive by the power of God and who is trusting in Christ for salvation. Father, would you bring salvation this morning? It's in your name I pray, King Jesus. Amen.